I really were going to spend our time focusing on verses 35 um, to 42. Verses 35 to 42. We read the section before and the section after because it helps fill in the context for us. I'm sure many of us can remember um, the Commonwealth Games that were held last year now in Glasgow. And even if you didn't get a chance to visit the Games or participate in the, the war for the tickets, I'm sure you heard about them on TV or you perhaps saw them or perhaps read about them in the newspaper. And we can all envisage the Games, but a major part in the Games that's perhaps not so well known is something that is called the Queen's Baton Relay. And it starts off at Buckingham Palace with the Queen's Baton, and she puts a message inside the baton. And the baton is then taken in all the Commonwealth countries before the start of the Games. And it passes 17 nations and territories, travels about 190,000 kilometres, all in about 288 days. And in a real sense, that's exactly what has been going on in the Bible up to John chapter 1. And it's not the Queen's message that's been carried on. It's the King's message, the message of Jesus Christ. God's message was passed from generation to generation of his own people. It passed over the thousands of years of the Old Testament, the 400-year gap in the middle between the Testaments, and it lands safely in the hands of John the Baptist here in John chapter 1. And John was a messenger sent by God like all the prophets in the Old Testament. And many people had gathered to him to hear his teaching. But some people were a little bit unsure. And they asked him in verse 23, Who are you? And, and he responds, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. And that's of course a quotation from the prophet Isaiah really foreshadowing John's coming. And John's whole purpose is to point people to Jesus. That's his whole purpose. Not to himself, but to Jesus. And really that's a Christian's job. Not to point people to ourselves, but to point people to Jesus. And in our text today, that's exactly what is happening. John, as it were, Passing the baton on to Jesus. Now Jesus is here. All the preparations done for Jesus' public ministry has happened. And now Jesus is taking this message out himself. His mission to save people from their sins. And in John chapter 1, 35 and following, we see that two of John's followers, now that's important, two of John's followers start to follow Jesus. So they stop following John. And they start following Jesus. And then one of them brings his brother to Jesus as well. Now I wondered if, if you noticed as we're reading through, I have in my notes here five, but there are actually six, names or titles given for Jesus in these verses. In verse 36, he's called the Lamb of God. In verse 38, he's called Rabbi, which means teacher. In verse 41, He's called the Messiah, or Christ. In verse 49, he's called the Son of God. In verse 49 again, he's called the Son of Israel. And in the same verse, he's called the Son of Man. 
Now, I would love to consider all six of those titles with you today, but time will permit us to consider the first three. So we'll look at Jesus being the Lamb, the Teacher, and the Messiah in these verses. The Lamb, the Teacher, and the Messiah. So let's look at, first of all, the Lamb of God in verses 35 to 37. In verse 35, we're told that it's the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. Now, the day before John had been there, but the day before, I want you to imagine like a university lecture theatre or a big public gathering, something like that. He's in a big public crowd and he says, Jesus passes by and he says, look or behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the next day, the day that we're considering, it's more like a private tutorial. It's just the three people standing together, John and these two disciples. So it's a private tutorial. But what do we notice? We notice that the message is exactly the same. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in verse 29. And in verse 35, it's a slightly shortened form. Look, the Lamb of God. But they would have remembered the previous day's teaching. The essence of it is exactly the same. The teaching is the same. And it's all pointing towards Jesus Christ. And Everything that John sought to do the day before, and on this day with his disciples, was like an arrow pointing towards Jesus. Just like all the prophets in the Old Testament who had passed on the baton of God's message. The day before, John was in his usual place. He was probably by the River Jordan. And he delivered this public lecture. And many people had heard him. And these two disciples were there. And they had heard him. But it doesn't appear that they responded on that day. There's, there's no response. They didn't stop following John and start following Jesus. But this next day, he's just with those two disciples. He gives them the same message. And they respond. They start to follow Jesus. They start to follow. A disciple, of course, is just a learner or a student. We could maybe call someone who was learning to drive a disciple of the art of learning to drive. It just means learner or student. And they're under the instruction of a teacher. A disciple is someone who's been taught. And what's the message on this day? It's the same as the day before. And it reminds us that perhaps if we are struggling with maybe unconverted family members or unconverted friends, the temptation is if they're not responding is to try and change the message. We can fall into that temptation. But the message is always the same. The good news never changes. The word of God never changes. This is our authority. This is our standard Everything that we do in our Christian lives must have a mandate in the Word of God. And if that's not the case, that's when we start to get into some tricky waters and some deep waters. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. And John never changed his message. And by God's grace, the two of them respond the next day. Now, to the 21st century mind, when we hear the phrase, the Lamb of God, that might sound really strange because I don't know what's in your mind, but when I heard that phrase at first, you're thinking of a lamb. There's a lot of baby lambs been born just now, or a sheep. You're thinking of that. But John here isn't pointing to a sheep in a field. He's pointing to a man. And that can seem really strange, can't it? But if you were a Jew, like these two disciples, it wouldn't have seemed all that strange to you like it might seem to us today. Because if you were a Jew, you'd be steeped in the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi. And it would have made a lot of sense to you. 
Because this would have brought into your mind the Passover festival in the Old Testament and all of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And it reminded you that God had told his people to offer animal sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. And really the purpose that why God set up that system was to teach the Jews three very important lessons that we can still benefit from today. The first reason why it was set up was to teach them that the punishment of sin is always death. The punishment of sin is always death. And what is sin? Well, there's many different definitions, but if you take the middle letter, which is I, and you keep on repeating it, I, 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 or me, 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 in essence, that's what sin does. It puts us at the center of the universe and God somewhere far away. That's the essence of what sin is. And if we had a throne in our own hearts, sin would crown us and put us there and God somewhere far away. And this is our rebellion against God. And the consequence for that is death. The second lesson was that forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is very costly. The sacrificed animal was given over, and of course, they couldn't get it back. It was given over, and it had to be stayed with the, the priest who was doing the sacrifice. And if the animal belonged to the person who committed the sin, there is a giving up of something. Something must be given up. So the forgiveness of sins comes with a price that must be paid. And the final lesson was that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The book of Hebrews makes that very clear regarding the Old Testament. The offended party had to offer the animal's life in their own place. But here, John is saying, right, all that's in our minds, but what does that point to? And remember, John's standing saying, look, the Lamb of God. And it points to the fact that the blood of bulls, the blood of goats and lambs, could never, ever pay the price for human sin against God. All these things were like looking through the narrow end of a telescope with Jesus Christ in view, or a magnifying glass with Jesus Christ being pointed to. They were pointing to him as the Lamb of God because he was going to be the one who would be the sacrifice for human sin. He was going to be the one who would take the place of man on Calvary's cross and pay the very costly price of his own life and his own blood so that we could be forgiven. And the question is, what will these followers of John do? They've heard the message again. Maybe you've heard the message more than once. But the question here is, what will they do the day before they hadn't responded, but in verse 37 we're told they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. Pure and simple. They followed. And we've all got a sense of what it means to follow. If you are following another car, perhaps in a car convoy going on a trip, you're, if you're behind, you take the turns that the car in front takes if you're following them. If the children play a game of follow my leader, all the children at the back copy the person at the front and take the turns that they take and do the things that they do. And that's the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. You do what he says. You trust him. You live your life under his lordship. Pure and simple. But the sense here is that it's not just a, 
Follow my leader stops after maybe 10 minutes or so, doesn't it? The car convoy stops when you get to your destination. Not here. It's a lifetime following of Jesus Christ. And really, in a sense, it never stops even when we get to heaven. It's always following him every step of the way. And it's a resolute following. It's a strong decision to follow him that never stops. It's a continuous action. And they respond. And really, in a sense, the Lamb of God, perhaps you're thinking it's a bit more evangelistic, and it really is an evangelistic message in that sense. But not if you think of it for the Christian as well, this is our foundation, as I was saying to the children. Christians, a Christian said to me recently, I've got past the gospel. I've got past it. It's a terrible thing. We never get past the gospel. It's our foundation. It's where we're rooted in. It's where we're established in. And if you're ever struggling in the Christian life, that's where you go back to. You go back to the fact that he died in your place on the cross. As one of the hymns sums it up, my sin, oh the bliss of that glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, was nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. You go back to him. Even when you've messed up and you've sinned, you remember that you stand in his completed work. You stand. Um, one of the professors was praying for us in college recently. They want you to do well in your exams, but even if you don't, your standing with God never changes even though you fail your exams. It never changes. You still stand in him. And even as we fail as Christians, we go back to this foundation and remember what our Saviour has done. It's never about our works. It's always about him. And then, how does Jesus respond to these two followers? Well, he responds as a teacher in verses 38 and 39. They start to follow, but the sense is that they're a bit tentative in following. So they're holding their distance. Jesus is a wee bit further on, and they're starting to follow, and he's got his back to them. Um, But then eventually, he turns round. He turns round. They had been drawn to Jesus by John the Baptist's testimony, but now they go to Christ himself and inquire of him. And perhaps a friend or a Christian that you know has brought you here today for the first time, and they've been telling you about Jesus, and that's a wonderful and amazing thing, and we should do more of it. But there has to be a time when you move past that person and get to the reality Jesus Christ himself. Our job as Christians is not to make people dependent on us, but to get them to Jesus. Always point them to Jesus. And in essence, that's the work of a pastor. You come alongside someone, always with the intention of getting them to Jesus. They should never become dependent on us, but going to Jesus and trusting in him. A Christian needs to point to Jesus. You cannot be like the person standing in Edinburgh recently he was holding up a massive sign, student lunches, student buffet, 20% discount. So you take out your student card and you follow the sign, you go all the way round the Royal Mile, you can't find the restaurant. So you go back to the sign and try and follow it again, no, you can't find it. And you realise that the person holding the sign is pointing in the wrong direction, the restaurant is behind him. Christian cannot be like that. We're pointing to Jesus all the time, every step of the way. And that's exactly what these that's what John was doing 
And these disciples start to follow Jesus. And, you know, if I had just stood and looked at that sign and said, that's a fantastic deal, isn't it? A student lunch with my student card, 20% off. I could stand and admire that sign all day. It would never fill my tummy, would it? If I never went and got it. It's the same with Christ. He can be offered, but if you never accept him, you never partake of any of the benefits that come from the gospel. You have to accept. You have to accept. And that's exactly what these two disciples do. They go to Jesus. And he turns around and says to them, what do you want? What do you want? And he's really acting as teacher here. In places in the Gospels, Jesus always asks questions of his followers to teach them something. It might sound a simple enough question. What do you want? It sounds like something that a parent might say to a child or a friend might say to another friend. What do you want? And it is a simple question. But... Jesus is asking that to unveil a deeper meaning, as always. There's always an undercurrent. And the deeper meaning here is that he's really testing the motives of these disciples' hearts. And really, he's really asking the question, in other words, why do you want to follow me? That's really the undercurrent here. And perhaps curiosity has brought you here today to find out more about Jesus, and that's wonderful. But why are you seeking Jesus? What's your reason for seeking him? It can't be for wealth and health and prosperity. The Bible tells us that sometimes a Christian can have a harder life. And it can't be to solve all our problems either. Sometimes being a Christian causes quite a few more. But it must surely be to have a relationship with God restored and to have the cause of that broken relationship sin dealt with. That's the primary reason. And from that foundation is a growth in holiness and a walk with God. And the response of these two disciples indicates this. They call him rabbi, which means great or master, and we would use the word teacher. And then they say to him, where are you staying? Where are you staying? And the rabbi, of course, is a Hebrew word. It's a describing word, which means great. And we would tend to use the word teacher or even professor for it. Um, and really what they're doing is they're expressing a desire to be taught by Jesus by calling him rabbi. They're saying, we want to learn from you. We want to spend time with you. We want to find out more about who you are and what you're going to do. And they submit to his teaching. He is the one with authority. And at the foundation again, this is another description of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who has heard the call of Jesus and who seeks to sit at his feet and to learn from him. And that's something the Christian never stops doing. And as Professor McLeod was saying wonderfully in class, it's one of those sit back and take a breath moments. He said, see when you get to heaven, you will still have the capacity to learn. It will never be removed, that capacity to learn. So as you're standing before the throne, you'll be learning more and more and more and more of what it means to be in the presence of a holy God. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful and an amazing thing. And the beautiful thing is here that these two disciples go. They start to follow Jesus. If they hadn't gone, they wouldn't have learned any more. They'd have still been lost in sin with all its consequences. And the thing is, they go immediately. They go immediately. And here is the important thing. The Bible gives a Christian or a, a minister or a preacher no warrant for telling someone to come to Christ 
tomorrow or the next day or next week or next year. The command is come now. Right now. It's the only warrant the Bible gives us. And these two disciples go to the Jesus who says, come and learn from me. Come and I will save you. Question is, will you go? Will you go? It was about the tenth hour, as it says there. Now, do a bit of tricky stuff there, because if you're a Roman or you're a Jew, you're going to come up with two different times. Because the Romans counted their days from 12 to 12, just like we tend to do. But if you're a Jew, you count your time from 6 to 6. So if you're a Roman, you would have it at 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. But if you're a Jew, it's 4 a.m. or 4 p.m. I think the thing to recognize, though, is that regardless of what one it is, it's going to be dark and later on at night, okay, or even darker in the morning. I don't think they're meeting together at 4 a.m. So I think it's going to be darker, and that's the essence of it. They're, they're meeting and they're saying to Jesus, the day's getting short, we want to spend time with you. In other words, we want to have a good, long talk with you. When was the last time that we had a good, long talk with Jesus Christ? When was the last time we spent time with him and his presence, learning from him? learning. But there's almost a sense of disappointment here though, just at this point, because we are not told what Jesus said to these disciples. That remains silent. The Bible's not, it doesn't open it up for us. But there's a clue in the next three verses. One calls Jesus the Messiah, and really Jesus must have shown them this and demonstrated it to them. So he must have said something about him being the Messiah to them. And verses 40 to 42. And in verse 40, one of the disciples is finally named. We haven't heard his name up to this point, but now we're told his name is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now who was Andrew? And He's one of those disciples that we don't know an awful lot about. But we're told that he's from the town of Bethsaida, which is to the north of Israel, and it means house of fishing. So you probably guessed Andrew was a fisherman. That's what he did for a job. Not a very lucrative job in those times, quite a poor job, but it reminds us that Jesus Christ is not just for the rich. He's not just for the middling sorts. The gospel goes out to absolutely everyone without any discrimination on our part. Our job is not to decide who the gospel is for. It goes out to everyone, and by God's grace, he chooses whom he will save. Our job is to take it to everyone. Now, who is the other disciple? There's a lot of theological tomes been written on that very question. We could debate it later on, but it's John. It's John. It's the Apostle John. It's clearly John. And in verse 40, we have a wonderful summary of the good news of Jesus. They heard and they followed. They heard and they followed. And the gospel is so simple. It's so simple that a child can understand it, a teenager can understand it, an adult can understand it, someone older can understand it. The gospel is that simple. Sometimes we complicate it by adding other things in. Like we might say to someone who has an addiction, get yourself cleaned up and then you can come to Jesus. No. Jesus comes first. You go to him first. 
and he does the cleaning up. And it can happen so subtly in many different churches where there's almost like an atmosphere put on. You need to do something in order to come. They can come in subtly. But no, the call is come to Christ. Come to him, the Messiah. And that's what Andrew does. And the first thing that he does is to go out and to find his brother Simon and say, we've found the Messiah. Come, let's see him. And again, this word makes it really strange to the 21st century mind. But if you were a Jew like Simon, you could actually understand it. Because the Messiah was promised in many, many places in the Old Testament. However, it's also true that Andrew and Simon and John, they wouldn't have fully understood what this meant. It's not until after the Holy Spirit's given that they fully understand what happens at the cross. But they know enough that this is somebody important. This is Messiah. And they knew enough to put their trust in him and to follow. The Messiah is the Old Testament word. Christ is the New Testament word. They both mean anointed one or chosen one. And by God's instruction, the Jews had anointed their priests they anointed the kings, they'd set them apart. Now, by God's grace, Queen Elizabeth has been on the throne for a very long time, and by God's grace, hopefully many more years. But at her coronation, she was anointed. She was set apart. Oil was poured on, and she was saying, you are set apart to lead and to look after this people. So what's going on here? Well, it reminds us that Jesus is anointed, chosen by God, He's God's man for God's job. God's man for God's mission. The only one who could save people from their sins. He's the only way. There is no other way to heaven. Because only he was perfect so he could pay that costly price as we thought about that he is the Lamb of God. There's there's something strange happens here though because Simon comes to Jesus and you know, if if we were greeting people, what would we do? We would probably extend our hand and do a handshake, wouldn't we? That's our standard form of greeting, or perhaps you might give someone a hug or something like that. Um, Jesus changes this man's name. If I walked in and said, your name is Jonathan, or whatever, and I said, I'm going to change it to Bert or something, you'd find that really strange, wouldn't you? That's strange. That's exactly what Jesus does. He changes this man's name. He says, your name is Simon. I'm going to change it to Cephas or Peter, which means rock, which means rock. And then God, again, if you were a Jew, not strange, God often did this in many places in the Old Testament. You remember Abraham was changed to Abraham. Jacob is changed to Israel. And there are different other um, examples as well. But if you were to read on the rest of John's Gospel and into the book of Acts, I don't think you would describe Peter as rock solid. He fell away from Jesus He denied Jesus. It's almost like he's standing on sinking sand. So why does Jesus call him rock? Well, it's because his status is being changed. When you believe in Jesus, it's not that you stop being a sinner. You'll be a sinner all the way to heaven. But you're counted as if you had never sinned. Your status has changed. And Simon Peter's status had changed. In Christ, he was a rock. Even despite his failings and his weaknesses, God loved him in despite of those things. And if you remember Simon Peter standing at Pentecost, boldly proclaiming of his Lord and Saviour Jesus, and over 3,000 people were brought into the kingdom 
on that day. He stood and testified to Jesus. He was engrafted in to Christ. Because it's not about changing before we come to Christ. Christ is the one who does the changing. And that's so important to remember. And if Jesus then is the only way to heaven, it reminds us that he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. It follows that none of our good works can do it. Church attendance won't save us. Saying lots of prayers won't save us. But having faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world will. And a Christian does want to come to church. A Christian does pray. But they're not the things that save us. Jesus Christ is the one who does that. And maybe you're struggling today with a burden that only you and the Lord know about. And God does know about it. You can go to a friend or a relative. They might be too busy to speak to you. But when you go to Jesus Christ, he hasn't got the headphones in with the music turned up loud. He hasn't left the telephone off the hook. He hasn't closed the door so that he won't listen to you. When you pray, it doesn't go into voicemail. He says, come. Come. So trust. Trust in this Jesus. Even when we're down or we're weak or we're struggling, we trust in him. We trust the lamb to bear our sin. We trust the teacher to show us the way of God. And we trust the Messiah who alone can save us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that Jesus is the lamb, the teacher, and the Messiah. We know that he's so many other things beside these, but we thank you for these three. We thank you that he's the lamb who bore the sin of the world. All who believe and trust in him have this removed. Such a blessing. And Father, we thank you that he is the teacher. Help us to come before him humbly and to want to sit and learn at his feet. And we thank you that he's the Messiah, the only way, the only chosen one through this job. Help us never to forget to proclaim that wonderful news that there is one way to heaven. There is one person who can get us there. And that's Jesus Christ. Help us to hold on to these wonderful and precious truths. In Jesus' name we pray.